You're listening to The Cutting Edge, Voices from the AHA, Episode 6. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA, and host of the Cutting Edge podcast. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run, and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. What you're about to hear is an unusual episode of The Cutting Edge, featuring a long interview with Marc-Andre Leclerc who died in a climbing accident in Alaska in March, along with Ryan Johnson. This interview was recorded about 18 months ago in preparation for an article that appeared in the 2017 AAJ. Associate Editor Chris Kalman spent about an hour and a half on the phone with Mark, recording the young climber's thoughts on two landmark solos he'd done that year, on Mount Robeson in Canada and Tori Ager in Patagonia. Cutting Edge usually focuses on more recent climbs, but the tragic deaths of Mark and Ryan prompted Chris to pull this recording out of the vault and make it available for this podcast, so you can hear Mark in his own words. I think you'll get a sense of the humor, humility, and intelligence that helped to make him such a beloved climber in person. Here's a little context for what you're about to hear. This interview covers Mark's Tori Ager solo in the Patagonian winter of 2016, and his solo ascents of the Andromeda strain and infinite patience on Mount Robson in the spring of that year. You'll also hear him talk about a huge solo link-up on Slessy Mountain in British Columbia when he was 20, and the first solo ascent of the Corkscrew Route on Cerro Torre when he was 21. Eventually, he soloed all three of the main towers in the Torre group. During the interview, he also mentions climbers Luca Lindich, Colin Haley, and Brett Harrington. This interview wasn't recorded for broadcast, so it's a little rough. In the background, you'll hear Chris madly typing notes for his AHA article. The discussion is at times raw and personal. And given the circumstances, you may find it heartbreaking. As we begin, Chris has just asked Mark when he started climbing and how he acquired so much experience so quickly. Okay, um, so I'm 24. I started indoor climbing when I was nine. Okay. And I started alpine scrambling when I was 11. I started like outdoor traditional climbing. I, I bought my first set of nuts and started going like tagging and using the rope in the alpine when I was 14. And I I got into cragging because I wanted to climb more technical mountains. And then I got into ice climbing when I was 15 and also free soloing. I mean, like, I started free soloing at the crag, you know, like technical pitches when I was 15. But we, we, we were soloing, like, probably up to five, six with my family friends, like, when I was, like, 12 years old. So it's kind of a blurry 
but like I start, I started solo, like free soloing like five tens and stuff when I was fifteen, and like started dry tooling and stuff. I got into a little bit later, like you know, I probably led my first mixed pitches when I was sixteen. So, just the sheer amount of time that you spent on rock and ice and in the mountains, it's just so much. Yeah, I think that's the key. Like, even even when I was really young and I'd go out scrambling with these family friends, like, they were pretty... We, we didn't follow trails a lot of the time and stuff, and um, we climbed a lot of, like, steep forest and loose dirt and, you know, like, vegetated forest class and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and even even, like, learning how to distribute your weight on, like, vegetated moss and stuff, um, when you're, like, 11 years old, it's actually a lot like mixed climbing. Like, it, it, it's a lot like snowed-up rock where, like, some of the snow is consistent enough to hold your weight and some's not, and you're, like, feeling through it with your boots and stuff. Like, because that's the kind of terrain that's really hard to learn and that, like, really freaks people out. And, like... It's actually so similar to like the kind of just messing around that I was doing. Like even even before I got into like bigger alpine stuff, just like it's almost like similar to the sort of unusual stuff I was doing at a really young age. Mm-hmm. And when you re- when you read about a lot of these older alpine climbers, like a lot of them like whatever grew, grew up in the countryside in Slovenia or something and. Just like ran around in the forest in their backyard, or yeah, it's kind of a tradition. Like you know, it sounds a lot like what you're talking about. You know, Peter Croft has talked about that, and Colin Haley. I think just being in the Northwest, you know, being adventurous in the Northwest, you might not be on like Yosemite splitters, but you're just getting used to steep terrain, even if it's yeah. weird, mungy. Yeah, exactly. We went out a lot in the rain. Like, a lot of the time, you'd have to get wet, and we'd go out in the winter, like, as soon as there was a really big blizzard. You know, we'd we'd go, like, bushwhack up some mountain in, like, a raging blizzard. Um, Fast forward to now, like, for you, you probably see a natural progression. But from outside to someone like me, it just looks like over the last couple of years, you just kind of exploded into the world scene as really one of the top alpine climbers in the whole world. So, you know, I have to ask in my mind, like, well, what the hell happened? You know, did your risk assessment change? Did you take on bigger goals? Did you, what, did you just, like, start getting sponsors or, like, what's going on? The, 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 the big thing? Um, is having the money to travel. Um, and a couple, I think the biggest thing was having the money to travel. And then, like, I climbed with some really good alpine climbers who I learned certain things from that really helped boost my climbing. Um, them. like, definitely, uh, I went climbing with, I don't want to, leave anyone out, but I'd say the big guys are John Walsh, 
I, I went to the Rockies to meet John Walsh and go climbing together. And that was like, I'd never been to the Rockies before. That kind of like ignited a huge progression in like my next climbing, which was key. And then um, when I climbed with Colin in Patagonia, like he's, he's so good at strategizing and logistics mm-hmm. that like, you know, whatever his, how many years of experience and all the years of time he's put into like perfecting his logistics. Mm-hmm. I just like got to see what went into his climbs and then like emulate and adopt a lot of his strategy, which is huge mm-hmm. because like some of my other partners, like, you know, we'd go climbing and I was like, oh, like, is this really the best way to do it? Like, you know, we're climbing with packs on and it's hard and it feels like we're suffering right. at the bivvies and like climbing with Colin, he had it dialed and yeah. I was like, okay, this is how it's done. And then got to apply that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the, the really big thing was just having the opportunity to travel in the first place. Cause like, you know, I had never, never had the means to travel until I was about 20 or 21. And you were probably in high school and shit too. <laughs> Um, I graduated high school early. I, I, I um, started when I was, I, like, I started when I was four in elementary school, and I skipped a grade, so I actually finished high school really young. Uh-huh. But, but then, like, you know, me, growing up, like, we weren't, we weren't, like, well off, and, um, like, I, I had to start working in construction to buy my own climbing gear when I was 14. Yeah, I was just, like, scraping by to climb in Squamish, you know? So I was, like, limited to right around my home zone. And, like, you know, even even going to Yosemite for the first time was, like, a huge epic travel experience for me when I was 20. And Mm -hmm. um, I was super scared that it was going to kick my ass. Like, I I always thought that Squamish was, like, this, like, mellow place and that, like, the valley had this, like, hard man reputation. And um, I was super surprised because, like, you know, my on-site grade in Yosemite was so much higher. I was, like, super blown away that, like, it wasn't as bad as I had always imagined. And I had a really good trip. And then after Yosemite, like, I wanted to go... Do this link up on Slaffy of like the Betris and the North Rim that I've always thought about since I was like a 15 year old kid. And uh-huh. I was trying to find somebody to do it with, and like, you know, Tony McLean, like, didn't think he had the energy for it. And then, like, I called up Colin, and Colin was busy, and he was like, dude, you should just go solo it. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, you're right, like, fuck it. And I like hitchhiked and bust my way out to Chilliwack and like soloed that link up and that was that was like I don't know just just realizing that like I didn't have to like you know when other people weren't psyched or I couldn't like line up a partner that like I could actually just make it happen by myself if I was right. motivated enough like that was a huge huge thing just like the realization that like I could go have an adventure, like you know I, I didn't I didn't have to like depend on 
finding like you know someone who was also psychic. Like if nobody was psychic, I could just go make it happen. Because a lot, a lot of the like you know when I'm going down to Patagonia in, in like the winter time, I'll like ask people like, hey, anybody psychic? You know, I have projects right. there I want to do with a partner, and everyone's like, no, are you crazy? You know. So it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll think of something I could solo. Let's talk a little bit. There, I feel like in everything I've read about you and, like, all of the conversations you and I have had or time that I've actually gotten to spend with you, there's, for me, there's been this elephant in the room, which I've just wanted to talk to you about, risk assessment. Is your risk assessment more accurate simply because you've spent more time out there in those situations, or are you tricking yourself into doing things you want to do by convincing yourself they're safe? Like, that's the big question for me. I, I, yeah, I definitely don't think, the, like, I don't think it's safe being up there, you know? Like, yeah, it's definitely not safe. Um, but also, like, it's not outrageously... Like, I was actually talking to Brett last night about it. Um, with Egger in particular, like, I've been kind of building up to it for a long time. And I I always told people, like, oh, you know, if you're high up on Egger and the weather changes and you're by yourself, you're, like, doomed. You know, like, right. that's, the worst, that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen. You know, you're high on Egger and the weather starts to get bad and you have to somehow descend and bad conditions right and like you know these last couple of years tentatively thinking about solo Niagara, like I've been building up my experience and building up my experience and systems and know-how in the mountains and, and then like when I was up there and I woke up that morning on my first attempt and it was snowing like heavily mm-hmm. it was like oh fuck you, you know like I'm actually here, and this is happening. And I started rapping, and, you know, was backing myself up and managed to make it calmly back down the mountain. And, like, as I started down, I just sort of started to draw on, like, all this experience, you know, like, I've, I've purposely gone out. Um and climbed in bad weather a lot on purpose, like just simply to build experience, like dealing with really bad weather. Um, and it was fine. And, and, and in re- in retrospect, like that situation um, that I, I'd always talked about and then like finding myself in that situation and being able to like extricate myself um, pretty calmly and and to feel like I wasn't in over my head was actually like almost more of a success than the actual ascent like a few days later. With, with soloing, like, you know, even on multi-pitch rock climbs, some of the times I've gotten to a move that I'm not comfortable with, been like, okay, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. And I've turned around and just reversed all the way back down to the ground. Like sometimes right. I have to be really successful. You know, I'm going up until that point where I feel like I'm not into it anymore or, or something's changed. And then, like, my judgment was actually, like, 
correct and, and, you know, that I had the ability to get out of that situation safely and without feeling over my head, like, without being like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, like, you know, this is so fuck. It was like, you know, just that familiar rhythm of doing what I've practiced and, like, you know, taught myself how to do for years. So I think my climbs have gotten a bit less risky, which is probably interesting for you to hear, like, um, I think by far the riskiest climb that I ever did was when I soloed the corkscrew. And after that climb, I kind of had this epiphany where I was like, you know, like that was a really cool climb and I'm proud of it. And, you know, I did it when I was 21 and I think it made sense at that stage in my life. But I don't think I want to expose myself again to that yeah. degree. Right. Um, and so... Like, the more recent climbs, um, I've had, you know, a, a better setup for a retreat, and I've been, you know, going down the same route yeah. and going up, not so not so wildly committed with, like, incoming storm, you know? Like, um, I, I, I felt like uh, that, that climb of the corkscrew when I was 21 is probably going to be the boldness high point of my whole life, actually. So that's the thing, man. It's just, there are two things at play here. One is you get better and better and you learn more and more. So there's that. But then on the other side of that is this sense of confirmation bias, you know? It's like every time, every, and I, I can speak from experience, uh, not that I've done like the level of high degree alpinism you've done, but you know, I did a lot of free soloing for a while, and every time I would survive some heinous position I put myself in, you know, it would make me think, like, well, that worked. I guess it's probably going to work next time. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like there's anything to that? Do you experience that or feel that at all? Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that, and it's like hard or not hard I think you have to be really conscious about keeping that in check like if all of a sudden you're willing to like take a certain type of risk that like you said no to you before because you got away with it once it's like something you have to reflect and be like okay hold on like what what process is like shifting my thoughts in this direction and like is that somewhere I really want to go like you know I never in my life, climbed below a Serac before. That was always something I was like, you know, on, only for, like, the most important climb and only if I was going to go so fast and, and you know, have confidence when I step below a Serac. And uh, on, on Agar, I, I did climb under a Serac for the first time. And mm-hmm. uh, not for very long, like, maybe for half an hour. And... Right. After that, I was, like, looking at these other routes. I was like, oh, well, you could start the same way and go here, or you could start the same way and go there. Mm-hmm. And then I had to think about it. I was like, you know, like, two days ago, you were, like, having this huge conversation with yourself, like, talking to myself here, that, like, you know, should you even step below this thing in the first place for this, like, one super important climb? And it was, like, this big argument or this big dilemma. And then, you know, like, after after I got away with it once, it's like, oh, like, look at all these other routes. You could start this way. And then I was like, 
you know, that's obviously not right. a very good direction, like, to, to change your ideals and, and what you're comfortable with so much. Because yes. you've just, like, broken that boundary and gotten away with it once. Like, I see how it's super possible, and I think it happens. Yep. But, I mean, you have to have that conversation with yourself and, like, step back a little right. bit before just changing your whole way of looking at things. I found it, in my own personal experience, I found it very, very difficult to be honest with myself. Because I would say, you know, like, if I'm not on the mountain or on the climb itself, yeah, I would make rules and, and all these have these ideas, like, you know, for you, it's I wouldn't climb beneath the Serac, right? So maybe mm-hmm. I would say, well, I won't on-site down free solo some route that I've never climbed on before. But then when I found myself in that situation, I would allow myself to do it. You know, I'd give myself excuses to be like, ah, well, this one, will, ah, but it looks so casual, so this will be okay, you know? Yeah. And so for me, I ended up just making a hard line between, I just stopped soloing. I mean, it has a lot to do with other life things, with girlfriends and family, but I, a lot of it has to do with just losing trust in my own decision making. You know, and it doesn't really sound to me like, it sounds like you're more honest with yourself. Well, I also don't, I probably have different ways of thinking. And, like, I, I wouldn't really make hard rules with myself. Like, I, I won't do this. I won't on-site down solo. Like, for for me, when I'm in that situation, like, I look at each climb and, and each moment very individually. Like, I'll look, I mean, maybe in the book I thought one climb looked like a great down climb, and I'll look at it from the top and be like, no, like, I don't, I don't like this. Or that doesn't look good. I'll choose something else. And, like... Forget about my like pre-planned itinerary, and then if I see something that does look good, I might be like, hmm, "Well, I'm not totally sure what that's going to look like a pitch lower, but you know, if I'm comfortable down climbing it and it gets ugly, I know I'll be able to go back up it, back up to this point, and then you like have to assess, okay, like what time of day is it? Do I have a headlamp? Are there alternate routes? And so. Okay. For me, like, right. just having, like, a set itinerary or, like, hard and fast rules of, like, what's in and what's out, um, it's, it's, it's more this, like, web of many small decisions. You know, like, each small decision, like, brings you down a different path. Let's, um, let's try and, uh, get onto the emperor phase, um. And so what motivated you to go climb it? How did you choose the objective? How did you know it would be safe? Did you have doubts, et cetera? Okay, so um, Luca and I wanted to just climb the emperor face, not in some patients in particular. Um, uh-huh. And I think, oh, actually, I know if I had gone with Luca, he probably would have tried either the House Haley or a new route. Um, one of the harder climbs on the face. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to Don Walsh a bunch about Infinite Patient and he had told me it would be a good solo and, and like I had put it in the back of my mind as a, a really cool solo objective. So that's how that came about. Like, you know, if, if Luca had been able to come with me, we would have tried a harder route and because I ended up going by myself, I had Infinite Patient kind of like already in the back of my head as like 
just uh-huh. a little option for that yeah. wall. And, like, I'd also been, like, you know, I've wanted to climb the Emperor face since I first saw a photo of Robson when I was, like, 10. Um, this whole winter and spring in the Rockies, like, every day or two, I would check the weather forecast for Mount Robson. And, like, the whole time I was, like, trying, I was looking out for that window. And it popped up, like, you know, even when Luca and I were climbing in Valley of Ten Peaks, Robson uh-huh. wasn't. Robson was not good to go. Like it's a, it's a totally different area. It's a really difficult mountain to get um in to have good weather around. Mm-hmm. It's so much higher than the mountains around it. Mm-hmm. And um and then it just so happened like we got, we got out from our two new routes on like our our last new routes in Valley of Ten Peaks, and I looked at the weather and like dude like this is it like this is the window and it was like a super short window there was some stormy weather and then it cleared and the day that it cleared in like the late morning the temperature freezing level like skyrocketed a thousand meters and then like hovered halfway up the face for the next several days so like like I, i i knew that i had to like approach kind of the day before and I'd have to start climbing super early in the morning, and I would actually, like, climb just ahead of the rising freezing level. And that that's exactly how it worked out. So, in your blog post about infinite patience, you wrote, um, Since then, while building experience climbing with partners on rocky alpine routes, I wondered to myself if I had built up the experience and technical skill to venture out again solo. Each route I did in the Rockies, even with a strong partner, felt as if it took me to my mental limits, and always I was relieved to have a trustworthy and talented partner to share the difficult leads and strenuous trail breaking with. So, to me, there's a big gap between that kind of feeling, like, oh man, I'm so glad I'm on belay right now, to just going and soloing, like, Andromeda and Infinite Patience. So, you know, where describe a little bit how you moved from that position to, like, being ready to solo. So, the first time I ever went to the Rockies, I tried to solo because I had no partner. I mean, I'd climb with John, but then he was busy. He's very busy. So, um, I went up to actually try Andromeda. And just, I'd never alpine climbed in the Rockies. I had no idea how hard it was. Um and just had this really scary experience. Like, I bivied in, like, you know, minus 35 Celsius. Woke up, like, you know, I got frost by, not on the strain, I was just trying shooting gallery. Um, but I ran, I ran, I ran out of ice underneath the snow and, and I had scraped my way up far enough that I couldn't go down. And like, uh-huh. oh, there was nowhere to put gear. Like, I had a rope and I had pitons and everything to like bail. But it was, mm-hmm. like, compact toss with, like, no hope for making an anchor or finding a piece. So, like, I, I basically had to climb, like, another 100 feet um, where I was, like, smashing the rock apart with my tools. Like, mm-hmm. I, was, I was, like, chopping cubes out of the rock and, like, hooking what was left over. And it was actually okay, but it was just, like, it was low angle, you know, like, a really low angle. Uh-huh. And it was probably like five four, 
but it it was just like not fun at all. And then as soon as I could get an anchor and I bailed, I was like, you know, I am not ready for soloing here at all. Right. And so that left a really lasting impression on me mm-hmm. of how serious the Rockies are. And then when I climbed roots with partners, um, they were all much harder, you know, than infinite patience. Like infinite patience isn't a super hard route. Um, mm-hmm. And neither is Andromeda strain. They're hard mm-hmm. enough, but like, um, you know, Greenwood Lock in winter was definitely a lot harder. Um, like much, much harder. And all the routes I did with Luca were, yeah, way harder. And the last two I did with Luca felt a lot better. So like, Temple was epic. And, and, you know, there were times where I was just super cold and like so glad that Luca had the energy to like, you know, lead a couple hard pitches. So I could chill and then, like, you know, get psyched to take back over again. And same on Tuzo. Like, we kind of epicked a bit on Tuzo. And, you know, there were times where, like, we had to dig, like, a waist-deep trench through sugar snow. And we hadn't eaten for a day and had run out of water. And, like, having a really good partner there was huge. And then the two climbs we did after that, like... We, we felt pretty dialed. Like, the Rockies has a really particular style. Like, the consistency of the snow and the angles of the rock and everything is really unique. By our last climbs, like, I think we were both really in the rhythm of, like, you know, find a hook or, like, get your tool in a crack, you know, brush, brush, brush the snow, like, with your tool, brush it with your hand, right. blow on it, look at what's there, like, and then just taking it step by step. We're, like, our first climb together... I think we were both a little bit like, whoa, like it was a little more overwhelming. And by the last climb together, like we definitely, I think, felt like we knew what we were doing. So that had a big effect on the solos. Mm-hmm. And then the solos, I didn't know if if I was going to be able to do them either. Like, you know, I, I brought a tagline, I brought gear, I was ready to bail. And I was just checking it out. I was like, you know, I'm going to go up and see how this is. And if I'm not into it, and I was like fully prepared to not be into it, you know, I'll just come down. Um, and I start, started up the strain and I was like, oh, you know, I know how to do this. Like brushing snow away, finding my placements one by one. And, right. Uh, and it honestly just felt fine. It was super fun. Like, um, by the time I got to the upper ice gully, I was just so stoked, you know, something that I was comfortable doing and enjoying doing. And then infinite patience is technically easier than the strain. There's one hard ice pitch at the bottom. Then there's some, like, there's an M4 traverse that was just super snowed up, you know, like two feet of powder snow. So that, that was tricky. But it, it's not hard, it's just time-consuming. A little higher, there was a, a big snow mushroom I had to dig a tunnel through, which was probably the crux. It was more just a big adventure, like, getting... I got, I got really into it, like, on on the approach. Like, sometimes, like, in the mountains, I'm just, like, thinking about the climb and the strategy, and I'm, like, listening to tunes or whatever. Like, my head's in, can be in a different place. But on, on Robson, it was, like, 
I was particularly appreciative of, of the whole place. Like I'd never been there before and I was like, you know, this is so awesome. Like I just wanted to take in everything. Like, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want, I didn't want to miss, I didn't want to miss like, you know, any of the views or like, you know, I was super into the colors and, you know, all the little critters, you know, that were waking up in springtime and, you know, the, the mountain has this really strong aura. It, it was more, it wasn't about the climb. It wasn't about the moves. It wasn't about like cranking some hard move or anything or like free soloing or it was just this like experience. It was like taking psychedelics or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then getting to the top and, and, um, realizing like that I was, my feet were too messed up to just start down right away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I brought this little bivy sack, emergency bivy sack, and I was like, I think I'm going to just dig a trench and just wait this out, like, give myself a few hours so that my feet can recover. That realization was kind of epic. I was like, you know, ho- holy smokes, like, I've climbed to the top of this epic mountain, and, like, I think I think I'm going to have to open bivy. <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, part of it was like, oh no, but the other part of it was like, kind of stoked. Like it was, uh-huh. it almost seemed like the, the, the whole, you know, climax of the whole thing. Like, and then, right. you know, I didn't really sleep. I just waited like five or six hours because my feet were so messed up from the trail breaking. Um, I just had to take my boots off and like let my feet recover before I could start front pointing back downwards. I, I got in a bivy sack and I was like, oh, like this is cold. Um, I made some soup and then I couldn't sleep. Like it was super miserable. And um, what I did was I boiled some water and put it in a dromedary, like my drum. And I stuck it under my hip and I had this like, because my hip was the coldest part where right. I digged the snow. So I just stuck this hot water bottle under my hip and I actually fell asleep. And I woke up, and I was like, oh, I need to make that again. Like, if I make another hot water bottle, I'll be good to go. So I, I but it was really dark. Um, oh. My headlamp had, like, died, I think. I don't know what was going on. But I, I, I just dumped the water back into the jet boil and was reheating it. Yeah. And, it, and I wasn't paying attention, or, like, my it was too dark for me to, like, see what was going on. And the water yeah. overboiled. Like it, it, it like uh, overboiled all over me and like inside, and it was one of those garbage bag style like emergency bivy sacks. Uh, so it just filled, it just like flooded with water. And then, uh, and then I was like, I was like, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. I, like, I, I instantly just like got out and started like putting my boots back on, and and I had to change my headlamp batteries. Um, and that was really hard. It's kind of funny. It's kind of stupid. But um, I, I would tape my batteries into little bundles so I knew which ones were fresh and which ones were dead. Like the loose ones are dead and the ones that are like taped together in a little bundle are fresh. Uh-huh. And um, I pulled out my little bundle of fresh batteries and it was super windy and my gloves were all rhymed up and like the tape had just like frozen and I had this mini epic trying to get the tape off my batteries. That was like the climax was like trying to get this to put my batteries in the wind. That's hilarious. 
And then, I mean, so at this moment, while you're up there and you're like epicking with the tape, the water spilled over, you're in your bivy sack, you're cold, it's dark. Like, is there any part of you that's like, oh, this could be bad, like, I could die up here? No, because, like, I knew that I just had to get my headlamp working and I right. would start, um, like, and, and that's exactly how it was. Like, I was like, this is really uncomfortable and this is kind of epic. Like, you know, when I got out of my bivy sack, the whole outside of it was, like, growing rhyme everywhere. And, um, as soon as I started down, it was like that old familiar rhythm thing, you know, like, as soon as I started down, I was like, oh, I know how to do this, you know, I I, I know how to make a bee thread, I know how to, you know, get down off a mountain, and yeah, in in those moments where you're like, epicene with the tape, you're like, oh my god, I'm on the summit of Robson by myself, this is epic, and it's like, right. it's like kind of this holy shit that you're feeling, but then as soon as you're you're descending, it, it's just like your six-foot bubble with your headlamp. And then it got really awesome. Like, the sun started to come up, and it was coming up on the other side of the mountain. And Robson is super huge, and it's super high. And all the other peaks, like, looked... You know when you're, like, so high above the other peaks that they look kind of flat? And they're really, like, flat and snowy looking below me. And the, the shadow, there was just this, like, incredible shadow of Robson mm-hmm. that just, like, at first, it went forever. Like, yeah, it was crazy. It was just this, this, like, epic shadow that just went forever. And then it kind of, like, I was making some water, and it kind of got closer and closer. And that was really cool. And at that point, I wasn't, like, I just had to downclimb this steep slope. Right. I mean, it was, it was tedious, but, like, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was just cool. You know, I was really sad. Yeah. Um, I want to toss you another quote from your blog post. As a young climber, it is undeniable that I've been manipulated by the media and popular culture and that some of my own climbs have been subconsciously shaped through what the world perceives to be important in terms of sports. Through time spent in the mountains, away from the crowds, away from the stopwatch and the grades, and all the lists of records, I've been slowly able to pick apart what is important to me and discard things that are not. So at this moment in your blog post, like the the tone of the piece shifts dramatically away from just telling a story to like telling the moral of the story, and you really begin a deep introspection into the question that all of us have to ask, which is why. So can you expand on that a little and talk about how you've been affected by your growing fame in the community and your success? I grew up in a town where I was the only climber, and. Um, I didn't have a community to guide me, per se, um, other than, like, you know, the online community at Cascade Climate, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, I would look for videos, like, anything to do with climbing to get sight. I was definitely influenced by that a lot, like, being young and, like, looking for connection with the world of climbing, whatever was being sort of, like, pushed as currently rad was like, okay, well, that's what's rad. You know, I should go to Squamish and, like, try to free eight climbs. Mm-hmm. I should, you know, and, 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 like, you know, and then the speed record thing has become huge. Like, it's almost become the focus of a lot of climbers. Um, 
you know, Yuli, like, in the real rock, on the Iger, and, like, you know, Honnold, and it's all about time, and that definitely, like, put in my head as a young climber, like, you know, maybe the objective was the same, like, maybe my inspiration would have been to go to the same place and do the same thing, but, like, mm-hmm. I, I think the way that these things were portrayed in the media, media like, put a precedent in my head. I'm like, okay, like, I have to record how long this takes me. Right, and I have, right. Like, I have to see, like, how long has it taken other people and, like, see if I'm the fastest. And, like, just stupid things like that. Like, like now I look back and I'm like, what? Like, why? You know, like, why not just go climbing? But so that's kind of what I was referring to, like, you know, on, on a lot of my climbs, I would be geeking out about, like, you know, trying to cut it in 12 hours or less. So some, like, arbitrary time that, like, has no meaning because of sort of what's being pushed. Um, and then, like I said in my blog, like, just by going climbing and, like, remote, especially remote places, there's, there's something about, like, getting far out. Right. Uh, or you just see the world a little bit differently. Like, I can totally understand, like, you know, somewhere like Chamonix, Chamonix, where you're, like, not remote at all, and the mountains are crawling with people, and there's, like, a town right there, and, you know, people are keeping track of who does what and how long everything took. Going to the mountains probably isn't going to, like, distill your train of thought there. Right. And, you know, going by yourself to Patagonia in September and Right. Spending, like, you know, multiple days just, like, admiring the mountains and thinking about what's special about them. And, uh, you know, going to places like the Canadian Rockies and having these big experiences with no other people around, like, real adventure experiences. Um, just sort of, and maybe it'll affect different people differently, but for me, it's just been like, why do we, like, there's all these arbitrary things that people become obsessed with that are, like, really nothing more than arbitrary and, like, I've just had, like, a, a perception shift, I, I guess, like, moving away from, like, finding importance in, like, what the media portrays as important, as important and just, like, just doing what inspires, what inspires me on a personal level, like, not really to beat anybody or to, like, set some records. Right. Um, one quick question I wanted to ask you, sort of a jump back to Patagonia thing. So you were talking about that Serac, right? And yeah. how you made the decision to climb under it because it mattered to you that much. Well, what, why? Like, what about that climb in particular made it worth that risk? That climb, well, number one, um, logically, for that climb, like not even just the importance of the climb, but the advantage of climbing that gully under the Serac is um, really, really big. Like, on my first attempt, it took me almost a whole day to climb that hanging glacier at the top of the Serac. Mm-hmm. Um, when I followed the route, it took me like an hour or something, you know, like. Right. Or, like, what took me, like, eight hours on my first try, I, I climbed in an hour um, by going around it. So the, the advantage was enormous. 
so that that was a big part of it. Like, you know, if it was like a, if it was like a 30 minute, like, oh, I might be a little bit quicker if I just start over this way. Right. I probably wouldn't have done it, but it was, you know, like maybe like a seven or six or seven hour difference. Right. And then, yeah, that climb was like really important um, to me because when I first even thought about soloing in the Torres, Edgar was the first one on my mind. Like, it was at the time the only one that hadn't been soloed. It was really mysterious. It was the first one that I thought of and the last one that I did. And and also it was such a step in imaginative thinking. Um, at least I thought. You know, like, I, a couple people had talked about soloing Edgar, um, Alex Huber and Colin and I. Uh-huh. And, uh, like nobody, nobody had ever talked about the East Pillar in winter. Um, mm-hmm. It was just such a, and I didn't think about it until last year um, when I was under it after doing Stanhart, and I was like, "Whoa! Like, look at that! Like, that looks so cool. Maybe it's possible." Like, I, I had to go there and be there and look at it in person to even think of trying it. Like, it sounds kind of dorky. Like, I don't want to sound or anything, but like what when I was thinking of that climb and planning it and this whole little saga that I've had like solo in the Tories, like that climb definitely seems like it would be like the you know the masterpiece of that time period of my life. Of climbing solo in those mountains. And so did it turn out to be? I mean that's what you thought would happen. After yeah, and then and then it was weird. Like after after doing it, I was super like wow, like really content. And then and then in the last couple of days, like I find this a lot after you do a really important climb that you've built up to or built up in your head, like you can have this kind of down. And like the down that hit me is just like it wasn't that hard, like from a technical standpoint. Um. And and the only hard part, retrospectively, was, like, thinking about it. Being like, you know, this is a route that I could do. And, and, and actually, like, taking that mental step of, like, thinking about it. Right. Planning it and being like, you know, this is possible. But then when I did the climb, like, it actually wasn't that technically difficult. Um, right. And then to have people like congratulate me and being like, oh wow, like, you know, this is, you know, I've been told that maybe it's like the hardest route that's ever been soloed in the mountains. And like, it feels weird. Like, all, all of a sudden, like, a lot of people are, are congratulating me. Like, every time I see like a, a climbing friend that I haven't seen since, since I did that, like, I want to talk right. about it. And, and, and then like, I'm like, what, what was it actually that important? Like, and then I have this thing in my head where I'm like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the only reason, like, I'm the only person doing that climb is just because, like, you know, I'm, like, the only person in my generation trying these things. Like, it's not, like, a, a saturated field or anything. Like, you know, most most kids in, in my generation, with, like, very few exceptions, are mostly, like, not going to the mountains at all. 
it just makes me wonder, like, you know, if more people were going to the mountains, like, would this even be harder? Like, would climbing have, like, progressed at a totally different rate? Or, like, is it like I'm the only only person in my field? Are these things even that hard, you know? Or is climbing right. just stagnating a lot? And Right. Yeah, and I, I've been left, I, I've been left with, like, almost more satisfaction that um, on my first try when I had to repel in the storm that I was experienced enough to handle that situation and like that's what I'm left with the most A public celebration of Mark andre Leclerc's life is being held in Squamish, British Columbia on May 12th All are invited the Cutting Edge website has a link to more information on this celebration. You can also find a link to the AAJ article that resulted from this interview. Thanks to Mark's friends and family for helping to make this episode possible. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tent Maker for supporting this podcast all year. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AAJ. Be safe out there. And happy climbs.